This morning's reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Colossians, starting at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learnt it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So thank you very much, Dot. So um, we're starting a new series this morning, a new sermon series. So before we get into um, Colossians 1, I just wanted to say a little bit about the the new series as a whole. So you will know that throughout uh, 2018, we've been focusing on the idea of hope. And we've examined this great biblical theme from all kinds of different angles. Uh, You'll remember, if you cast your mind back to the beginning of the year, we thought about hope in particular contexts. We thought about hope in the workplace and hope in the community. We've also examined uh, a number of questions of hope. We've asked ourselves, can we trust the Bible? Um, is, is, Is faith and science compatible? And we've even asked ourselves fundamental questions like, can we be sure uh, that God even exists? Throughout the year, we've um, thought about some Bible characters who we've identified as people of hope. We've looked at people like Job and Noah and Nehemiah uh, and and, uh, Joseph and uh, Isaiah and others. So now in the next couple of months, we're going to think about how we ourselves can be people of hope. How can we ensure that the hope that is in Christ is very real in our lives, our lives as individuals and also our collective life as a church? And how can we share that hope with those around us? So the title of our new series is 
a journey of hope. And over these um, next few weeks, we're going to be identifying a number of steps on that journey. Steps that will lead us into a life of greater intimacy with Jesus and a life of hope in him. So there's eight, eight uh, weeks in the series, so eight steps along the journey. And those steps are going to be based on this particular book of the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Colossians. Now I have to say, Colossians is really one of my favorite New Testament books. Uh, and the reason is it's so very much focused on Christ. Jesus is there at the heart of everything that Paul writes in this letter. And therefore, it makes a wonderful basis for our journey of hope. Each step that we will take along the way is centered on Jesus. Almost as if we're taking Jesus by the hand and asking him to lead us on our journey of hope. So our first session today in the series is based on the passage that Dot has read for us, the first half of Colossians 1. So each, of the, each week there will be a, a, a subtitle. So the subtitle for this week is Journey of Hope, Growing in the Knowledge of Christ. But there will be a step, each step, each week there will be a step to take. And this week's step, step one, is to live a life which is pleasing to Jesus. That, uh, that phrase comes from verse 10. And we'll look at that uh, in a bit more detail in a moment. First of all, just a bit of background about Colossians. What, what, what can we say about this letter? Well, it's, um, it's a letter written from Paul in prison. It's written to the church at Colossae, but it's also intended to be read more widely. In the final chapter, there's an instruction that it should be read also in the church in Laodicea. These were young churches. They'd only recently been established, and Paul himself hadn't even been there. The, the, the church had been established by one of his fellow workers, Epaphras. And like most of Paul's letters, it's not a letter which sets out in detail a comprehensive, uh, systematic description of the faith. On the contrary, it seems to be written to address particular concerns about the church in Colossae. Now, scholars seem unable to agree about what those concerns were, uh, that, that Paul had about that church. A couple of times he uses a phrase where he talks about the basic principles of the world, which suggests that perhaps teaching of the gospel in Colossae had been diluted by some sort of worldly wisdom. He also seems to suggest in one or two places that maybe the young disciples there had been told that in order to be Christians, they also had to be observant Jews. So whatever the issues were that Paul was trying to address, in some way, they're not that important to us because we can see that Paul's solution is to point his readers, his hearers, back to Jesus. The person and the work of Jesus, Jesus' death and resurrection, are the touchstone to which Paul returns time and again. So step one on our journey of hope this morning is to live a life pleasing to Jesus. And we've taken that phrase from verse 10, and that's the verse that we'll be concentrating on this morning. Paul has begun this letter to the Colossians by thanking God for the church in Colossae, commending them for their faith, 
and at the same time taking the opportunity to remind them of the power of the gospel. It's a gospel that's spreading all over the world. Paul tells his readers that he prays for them to be filled with the knowledge of God. And then he explains why he wants them to be filled with that knowledge. He sets out in verse 10 his hope for them under God. And as we'll see, he certainly didn't lack ambition. This is verse 10. We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Now, as I've said, we've identified as our first step this week the idea of pleasing the Lord in every way. And that's what we'll focus on uh, as we go through this verse. But let's, let's, first of all, just identify the four different elements that we see uh, in this verse. So, first of all, we're to live a life worthy of the Lord. Then we're to please him in every way. We're to bear fruit in every good work. And then we're to grow in knowledge of God. So what does it mean to live a life worthy of the Lord? When I started preparing this sermon a week or two ago, uh, two of the news stories that were featuring in the papers and on TV were about England sportsmen. Cricketer Ben Stokes was acquitted of a fray after a fight outside a nightclub in Bristol. And rugby player Danny Cipriani was fined after pleading guilty to a drunken brawl while his club was on a pre-season tour of Jersey. Quite apart from any criminal proceedings, both players faced uh, charges from their sports professional bodies of bringing the game into disrepute. Now, we don't know whether that would have happened if they hadn't been quite such prominent players. Rugby player throws a punch after a few beers is not exactly an earth-shattering or shocking headline. But of course, the point in both cases is that some people took the view that if these players were to be picked for England, they should behave in a way that respected that privilege. They'd been honoured by being picked to represent their country, and so they ought to behave in a way that was worthy of their status. They are, after all, role models models for young cricketers and rugby players. So if a certain way of life is expected of someone simply because they've got the honour of being picked to play for England, how much more should a certain way of life be expected of those who are honoured to be sons and daughters of God, which is what we are. When we leave here this morning and go about our daily lives, we go as ambassadors of God. We're a chosen people, the Bible tells us, a royal priesthood. We're to live lives worthy of the Lord. Not, let's be clear, that we live a worthy life in order to earn our salvation, because Paul makes clear elsewhere that God loved us while we were yet sinners. But having been saved and having been chosen to be his ambassadors, we must then live a life worthy of that calling. And this is something that we're called to do, not just as individuals, but as a collective body. The way we live in community with each other is to be worthy of our calling as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Those outside the church will look at the way we relate to each other and they'll take a view as to whether that behavior is worthy of something that they find attractive and want to be part of. So the first element of verse 10, being worthy of, uh, of the Lord, is something which has something of an external focus. It points outwards towards the outside world. The second phrase is more about our intimate relationship with the Lord. We're to please him in every way. Now, you might not think that's easy, and, and you'd probably be right. It's not necessarily an easy thing to do. But we do have lots of practice in our everyday lives. Think of the people that you're closest to. Think of those that you love, your family, your spouse, your close friends. To build that relationship with them, to grow in love or in friendship, you are likely to want to please that other person. And in order to please them, you need to get to know their likes and dislikes. You learn the things that they like to eat, the things that they like to spend their time doing, the sort of conversation that they enjoy, and the things that they find difficult or uncomfortable. After a while, we don't even need to think about this, do we? It becomes intuitive, it becomes a natural way of life. And surely we can do the same with God. Whatever plans we make and whatever decisions we're faced with, we can ask ourselves, what would please our Lord? And the more in tune with him we are, the easier it will be to answer that question. Even if we find it difficult to do this on our own, we can call on the collective wisdom of our Christian brothers and sisters. Let's work out together what would please the Lord in our community, and then let's do it. A few years ago, it was common for Christians to use the slogan, What would Jesus do? You'd see people walking around, wouldn't you, with WWJD on, their, on wristbands, T-shirts, and so on. It's all a great idea, but maybe a better question would have been, WWPJ, what would please Jesus? Why don't you try that as a slogan for your life? Put it on the side of your fridge. Have it as a screensaver on your phone or your computer. Write it on the back of your hand. Whatever you do to remind yourself of things throughout the day. What would please Jesus? Paul says to the Colossians, we ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding in order that you may please him in every way. Third phrase in verse 10 is bearing fruit in every good work. Now we think quite a lot about fruit, don't we, in the Christian life, and we know that it's not something that's just an add-on. It's not something that you hang on to a tree for the purposes of decoration, like a bauble or a candle that you put on a Christmas tree. Instead, it's something that grows naturally, something that's produced according to the nature of the tree and the health of the tree. And Paul wants the Colossians to understand that by reason of what Jesus has done for them, they are new creations. They have God's Spirit dwelling within them. And they must therefore expect to produce fruit. So this, if you like, is the test of whether they are indeed living lives worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him. 
If they are doing that, they will produce fruit. The fruit's something tangible. It's something that you can see and touch. There's no doubt that it's there. So as well as regularly asking ourselves the question of what would please Jesus, perhaps we should also be looking at our lives and checking whether there's indeed fruit growing, which evidences the work of God's Spirit in our lives. What might this fruit look like? Well, we can see elsewhere in Paul's letters the the description of the fruit of the Spirit. He talks about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So we'd expect to see these qualities as a person or as a church congregation seek to live a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him. The fruit will be seen in acts of kindness and hospitality, in generosity, in looking after the sick and the lonely, the poor and the needy. We only need to read the Gospels, don't we? Read about the life of Jesus. It's not hard to see what sort of behaviour earned his favour and what didn't. We should be able to work out how to please the Lord and then we can expect the fruit to follow. Final part of uh, verse 10 talks about growing in the knowledge of God. We've already talked about this a little bit, haven't we? The idea that you, if you want to please someone, you have to get to know them. You need knowledge about them. You have to become acquainted with their likes and dislikes. And it's fairly clear that when Paul talks about knowledge of God, he doesn't mean knowledge about God, he means knowledge of God. That's not just a pedantic description. We all know, don't we, that you can know a lot about someone without knowing them. We can know a lot about the Prime Minister by seeing what's written about her and and, uh, seeing her on TV, but that doesn't mean we know her in any personal, meaningful sense. With God, we must aspire to know him better and better. We need to know his character more closely and more intimately so that we can live lives worthy of him and so that we can please him. Knowing God and having that intimacy with him is, in Paul's eyes, important for the Colossians because it will protect them from the false teaching which seems to have been going on in their church and the misleading doctrines which seem to have been creeping in. For us too, the better we know God, the more closely we'll be able to follow him and discern his will. Again, it's something that we can do better together. Yes, there will be times when we need to be alone with God, reading his word and listening to his voice, enabling him to speak into our lives. But there's also times when we can learn from each other. Most of the fresh insights I get into the Bible come from my brothers and sisters in Christ when I'm meeting in home groups, wrestling with God's word together. God's depths are fathomless. However deep we go into God, there's always more. But he wants us to get to know him better, both as individuals so that our lives are enriched and we can be more like him, and also as a community of believers so that together we can demonstrate to the world what the love of God looks like. So as we've been looking at these various elements of verse 10, it will have been obvious to you that they're all interlinked. 
Our focus, step one of our journey of hope, is that we're to live a life pleasing to Jesus. But in order to do that, we need to know him more intimately. We need to understand more fully what will please him. And so gaining in knowledge of him is essential. And as we know him better, so we will more naturally be able to please him. And the consequence of that will be fruit in our lives. And so it would be absurd to think that we need to choose in life between, on the one hand, an active faith that's always busy, always doing things for God, and on the other hand, a contemplative faith that spends time quietly in communion with God. We need both the deep, intimate, heartfelt knowledge of God that comes from spending time with him enables us to know how we can live lives which are pleasing to him. We do that and our lives produce fruit and also lives that are worthy of the Lord. So, and so the knowledge of him and our efforts to please him, the fruit in our lives and the lives worthy of our calling are, if you like, like a virtuous circle. Each feeds off the other and leads us on, keeping the cycle going so that we know God more, please him more, bear more fruit and live lives more worthy of him. I do think uh, that there's one other way in which these four elements of verse 10 come together. And I want just um, finally to share with you one way in which I think we can get a glimpse of a bigger picture that God has in store for the Colossians and for the church generally. I want you to think back to Probably that's a bit small, you may not be able to see it, but it doesn't matter. So I want you to think back to what the Bible tells us about God's plan in creation. Once God had made a world which had everything in it that was necessary for human life to flourish, he then created men and women. And he intended that they should be fruitful and be his stewards of the created world. Now, things have obviously gone badly wrong, but one of the key purposes of the gospel, one of the things purchased by Jesus' blood, is not just that we should be reconciled with God, but also that mankind's role as stewards of the whole of creation should be restored. And so there are some parallels between what Paul is writing to the Colossians and the creation story. We're to live a life which is pleasing to Jesus. Mankind was originally very pleasing to God. In Genesis 1 we read that after God had made humankind, he saw all that he'd made, and it was very good. Being pleasing to God was part of mankind's original purpose. And we are to be restored to that purpose in Jesus. Secondly, we're to grow in knowledge of God. Now, sin came into the world because Adam and Eve weren't content with knowledge of God. They wanted other knowledge as well. They ate the forbidden fruit, which was fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we've seen, as we've thought through verse 10, that the knowledge of God leads us into a life that's pleasing to him. But for Adam and Eve, pursuit of forbidden knowledge was actually their undoing. We are to live lives worthy of the Lord. 
Adam and Eve, before the fall, were both naked and yet felt no shame, we're told. That's because they knew that they'd been made by God and were pleasing to him. They disobeyed God, ate the forbidden fruit, and immediately they were ashamed of their nakedness. They knew that they were no longer worthy of the Lord. God had commanded mankind to be fruitful, not just in increasing their numbers, but also having authority over the earth and all the creatures on it. That authority was lost, but now in Jesus can be found again. We can be truly fruitful in every sense of the word as God originally intended. So, step one on our journey of faith is to live a life pleasing to Jesus. It's a small step, but in one sense it's a giant leap. It's in one sense it's a small step to say to Jesus, in all I do, I want to please you. But if we do it, it leads to a life of fruitfulness and a growing knowledge of God. And if we all do it together, then we will truly be the true humanity that God intended us to be.